Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am your hostess, Pat Rulo, and today I'm so happy to share a recent Firebird Book Award winning author with you. He is Dr. Bernard Leo Ramakis, and his winning book is titled The Paraclete. Dr. Ramakis has practiced internal medicine in a physician shortage area of rural Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania, for more than 41 years. During that time, he has published five novels The Paraclete, Keystone, Cassidy's Solution, Mia, and The Lame Duck. Also, three works of nonfiction The Malpractice Epidemic, A Layman's Guide to Medical Malpractice, Medicine from the Heart, and Medicine Between the Lines. And also, one screenplay Mia and one book of poetry, Superstar. His novels, The Lame Duck and The Paraclete, have won multiple book awards, and I am so looking forward to finding out more from this fascinating person. Welcome to the network, Dr. Ramakis. Hi, Pat. How are you today? <laughs> I'm just great. How are you doing? Well, now that I've been told that I'm fascinating, I'm doing a whole lot better. I know. You can call me every day. I'm telling you, I might. <laughs> hey, listen, congratulations on the book win. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I, I am so grateful that you and your organization are providing independent writers and independent publishers with uh, the opportunity to showcase our work. And uh, I'm so proud of the work that you're doing with all your uh, charitable work, um, helping uh, with uh, uh, things that are so needed by so many people that are so overlooked. So uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today and uh, to have uh, uh, won these awards. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's It's been our pleasure not only to work with authors, but to combine it with that charitable aspect where the author can help with the Pillowcase Project and help transform homeless shelters for women and children, especially during these days. We all need to reach out and touch people, even if we don't know them and they don't know us. You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, one, of, one of the most uh, extraordinary people I've ever met in my life was uh, an elderly uh, Baptist minister by the name of uh, uh, Richard Thomas. And um, when my daughter was going to uh, Seton Hall, they had a fire in the dorm um, and uh, early in the morning. And um, uh, parents all over the country were, were worried. They were hearing on the news that there was this big dorm fire at Seton Hall. At any rate, luckily... Um, my daughter was on the floor below where the fire broke out, and everybody was safe. There was no problem. But when uh, I told Reverend Thomas about this, he went ahead and he got these highly polished stones that uh, he had uh, uh, carved crosses into. I mean, this man was a man of God like nobody you've ever met. When when you were sitting in a room with him talking, you felt that God was sitting in between the two of you and listening. The man was extraordinary, and he went ahead and he he brought over this entire bucket of these highly polished stones that had crosses in them, and he said, would you give this to your daughter to give to all of her friends who were displaced by this fire, and tell them this message, that even though I don't know you, I can still pray for you. Yes. And uh, she took the thing down, and uh, I have one of them in my desk right now and i'll bet that a lot of these kids are still carrying that uh, that stone around with that that uh, cross emblazoned in it and uh, with the idea that there are people that are praying for them people that they don't even know so you're absolutely right 
Uh, I love that story, and I, I agree with you. I bet every one of those students carry that or keep it or they have it somewhere tucked away, and we'll look at that, and, and, and it will give them that reminder that there's people out there that they don't know who are on their sides. So I think it's a very, very hopeful message. Yes, it is. Absolutely. You're busy with your medical practice, and then you've written medical books. What caused you to decide to write fiction? Well, it's interesting. I've been writing my whole life. I had a, a very good elementary school and high school education. I went to a parochial school, went to a, a school that was taught by Polish nuns, and uh, they were very big into communication skills. Uh, we did a lot of writing. We did a lot of speaking. We did a lot of singing. We did a lot of things that showed that you were alive. And um, I, uh, I never really had much of a fascination for writing because, you know, you were being forced to do it. And uh, finally, when I got in high school, I had a little bit of an interest in poetry. When I got into college, uh, I became more interested in poetry. Still, I wasn't really that interested in fiction or uh, all of the other voluminous uh, academic-type stuff, nonfiction, that you had to uh, be exposed to. But the, the poetry, I, I seemed to gravitate toward a bit. When I got uh, into medical school and into my residency, I started uh, uh, saying things with uh, patients and uh, being able to report them. And I, I started writing small little pieces for some of the medical journals, and I got them accepted. And um, when I uh, finally uh, got into medical practice, uh, there was a need at that time to write a uh, some type of book about uh, the malpractice epidemic, about how there was this epidemic number of frivolous lawsuits against doctors and how it was destroying the profession and the uh, the relationship between uh, doctors and their patients. So I wrote The Malpractice Epidemic, and then uh, I started to think about all of my experiences through medical school, through trying to get into medical school, uh, through my residency, through my the early years of my practice, and I just started to write fiction because I started to get all these ideas of uh, going ahead and, and doing something artistic with it, uh, other than just reporting a scientific finding that I had seen. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of uh, gravitated into fiction just as a natural consequence of, you know, the poetry and then the, the medical writing. And after my first uh, book was published, after the malpractice epidemic was published, I, uh, I was contacted by uh, an editor by the name of Dina Minolkin, uh who became a very important part of my writing life. She, uh, she really liked my book, The Malpractice Epidemic, and she was the editor of Internal Medicine World Report, which was a uh, medical journal that was read uh, uh, twice a month all over the world. And she contacted me, and she says, you know, I really love your writing. She says, uh, anytime you ever wanted to do anything for us, you know, she said, it's yours. And I, I really didn't pay much attention to that. I didn't really know where she was going with that. And then one day I, I started to look at the, the different medical journals, and people had columns, and it sort of hit me that I could really have a real platform here to to, you know, really reach a lot of different doctors and their patients. And I got in touch with her, and I said, I'll tell you what, I, I really don't know if this is going to work or not. Let me send you what I would consider to be two columns of things that would be on my mind and, and see if this is what you're looking for. And, you know, if you like them, let me know. We could arrange something that I could do this regularly. If not, you're not going to hurt my feelings. So I sent them off, and it seemed like they were still in the mail, and she already got back to me, and... uh she said, hey, you're on. You're our feature columnist. Huh. So that uh, that opened up uh, 
a really great writing opportunity. For 12 years, I had the uh, what became one of the longest-running and most widely read physician-written columns uh, in America. And uh, we we reached a lot of people. We hit a lot of nerves with, you know, uh, comments about what was happening to health care and the government and health insurers and uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry and a lot of things like that. Sometimes we got pretty close to uh, pretty close to things because uh, you got some comments back from people in higher up positions that, that they weren't very fond of the fact that you know you were calling them out on the carpet for things that they should be doing. So. Uh, that led to speaking engagements all across the country, and uh, it uh, it the column lasted about 12 years, and then after 9/11, the advertising fell off, and a lot of the small journals like Internal Medicine World Report uh, they they just couldn't you know, keep up with the need, and they had to try to scale back, and that wasn't enough, so they wound up closing shop. But um, after that was done, after every week I had to come up with something fresh about what was happening in healthcare. I had all of this energy to go ahead and start putting things down on paper and uh, uh, a lot of different ideas for novels. All of a sudden, I had about a dozen novels written in my head, uh, things that uh, something would come up and just give me a, a great idea for an ending to a book. And then all of a sudden, I started to work backwards. And boy, here we are in a situation where you started with a perfect ending, and now you're beginning with a couple characters in the beginning and basically given life to a couple characters and just putting on paper what happens to them naturally in the progression of their relationship from the first word of the book to the to the conclusion, which you've already written. Right. And so it's been a fascinating trip as far as sitting down and uh, looking at all different kind of things like rural medicine in the lame duck, um, terrorism in the Middle East, and the effects of uh, uh, soldiers being missing and coming home to their families in the United States, in MIA. Um, Keystone, about a, what it's like to be a medical student, the different things that people go through, not only trying to get into medical school, but when they finally get in. Um, and the paraclete, um, which is a, a total different uh, type of thing, about um, uh, pedophilia within the Catholic Church and about uh, uh, one man's solution to it. <laughs> so it... Uh, it's it's been interesting, and there are a whole bunch on the you know still on the uh, the back burners that I just after we get through this pandemic I'll have a little bit more time to sit down and finish uh, the rest of the ideas that I probably started with uh, probably about ten twenty years ago. So uh, it's been an interesting ride. How do you find time to write? Do you schedule it in, or when does that happen for you? Well, you know, uh, if you uh, you want to get something done, ask a busy person. Right. I've always had a lot of interest in life. I I always uh, had people inspiring me and encouraging me to go uh, in the directions uh, uh, where my where my interests uh, lie. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been very interested in sports, especially baseball and basketball. I was an athlete my whole life. Um, uh, writing has obviously been an important part of my life. Um, and I, I sort of go day by day. I, I never look back. Mm -hmm. I don't look in the past because I can't do anything about it. So I don't pat myself on the back and say, hey, look what I did. I won a trophy in the Little League. Uh, I don't go that direction. You know, I, I don't look back and say, look at all the wonderful things I did. Because by not doing that, 
uh, I can go ahead and I don't have to kick myself in the rear end every time that I make a mistake. <laughs> and that happens too. So it, it it makes it a clean slate. Every day that I get up, I have a clean slate. And I don't worry about tomorrow because I don't know where that's going. So I just concentrate on today. And when the need arises, I respond to it. Um, I'll do anything for anybody. Anybody that, that needs something, as long as I believe that we're working in good faith together, I'll do anything for anybody. Uh, a number of years ago, the athletic director of the high school where my children went to school came up to me and said, boy, we're having a real tough time with uh, our baseball program. We've won one game in three years. And uh, he told me, he says, I, I know people that uh, uh, from down in uh, Wilkes-Barre where you grew up and where you coached. Uh, I, I had been out of college five years before I started medical school. So during that time, I... Uh, taught science and coached basketball and baseball in a couple different high schools. I taught college at East Stroudsburg State College, and uh, I was a hospital lab director for a period of time. So I had a lot of different things that uh, that gave me a whole different slant on medicine before I even entered medical school. But he said, you coached. He said, you were a very successful coach. Would you ever think about coaching again? And uh, he said, we could really use somebody up here to give us a little different direction. So I took over a program that won one game in three years, a high school baseball program. And I ran it for six years, and we wound up going to the divisions, uh, uh, into the divisional playoffs four times, and we won the whole thing uh, the last year that I coached there. So it gave me an opportunity to to be real close around my kids, uh, be involved with my own children, um, my and uh, to help a lot of kids, I mean, if you look at what the accomplishments of all the kids that I coached, uh, it's incredible what they became. There are so many professional, military, uh, tradesmen, I mean, people that, that are upstanding citizens today. And you saw them when they were kids, very impressionable kids looking for a direction in life. So it wasn't so much about teaching them how to uh, hit home runs. It was about uh, teaching them about life and where baseball sort of fit in. And my own three children, I have uh, two sons and a daughter. My uh, All three of them are medical doctors. Um, my oldest son is an intensive care physician. My daughter is a neonatologist who also has her own corporation where she uh, helps uh, female physicians uh, who are experiencing burnout in the profession. And my youngest son is a hospitalist. And all the uh, my, my two sons play baseball for me on the high school team. And uh, my daughter, I pretty much taught how to hit home runs as uh, I would any uh, any uh, boy, and uh, she wound up becoming a Division One uh, uh, softball player at uh, at Seton Hall. So the thing is that uh, there were these needs, and I sort of yep. the thing that has allowed me to go ahead and to venture outside of strict medicine is the fact that I'm in a rural area. Mm-hmm. where you don't have the, the population to take care of like you would in a big city. So you're not expected to see 50 patients a day, which you can't do, by the way, anyway. Exactly. Um, and, you know, these guys are expected to go and see 50 people a day on, on busy days and whatever and uh, remember everything about everyone and take care of them appropriately, and it just can't be done. Um, the other thing is that um, being in a rural area and having your practice in your home I don't have to spend hours a day in commuting, going someplace and then coming back. I fall out of bed and I'm in work. So for 41 years, my phone line has been open 24 hours a day. And if you're sick at 3 in the morning and you can't wait till the next morning, 
you come over to my office, I'll take care of you. And if you can't come over here, I'll come to your house. Mm. I've been doing that for 41 years. And it's, it's people say, well, how could you do that? And it's, it's amazing when people realize that you're really going to do it, the respect that you get. So you'll see when you're out mowing your lawn on a Saturday, uh, somebody drives by and they wave to you and Monday morning they call you. Is there any way you could see us? We've been sick all weekend. Well, wait a minute. I, I waved to you on Saturday. Why didn't you, you know, I said, well, you know, you got a life. You're busy too. We didn't want to bother you. This could wait till Monday. Could you, you know, could you get us in today? So you, you develop a relationship with people that your practice becomes part of your family. And if you, the only way you can do that is by having a small enough number of people to work with that you could become available to them, which becomes one of the most important things in medicine. The ability to be available, uh, the ability to know what you're doing, to have ability, and the ability to be affable, that to convince people that you really care about them. So you have those things, and medicine becomes an extraordinary profession, and you really, you really feel sorry for all the people that are burning out from it and saying, I should have never gone into this. I could have gone to the Wharton School of Business, and I could have been a businessman today, or could have gone to law school, and I could have been rich and the whole bit. You hear this so much, and it's it's because not because people have lost their their love for the practice of medicine, but because they become so overworked in such an unrealistic fashion. Uh, years ago, when when I was writing my column, I took on the vice president of the AMA, who wrote an article about there were too many doctors in America, and his implication was he wanted to uh, get rid of bringing foreign medical graduates into the country and giving them residencies and allowing them to practice. And I took this guy on and I said, hey, look, uh, don't tell a person who's been sitting in an ambulance for a half hour waiting outside an emergency room to get in, who's been having chest pain for two days, don't tell them that there are too many doctors in America. And so at any rate, you know, what I talked about 20 years ago, now is obviously very apparent mm-hmm. that we don't have enough medical doctors. Right, right, right. Uh, and, it, you know, what they what really would have to happen for medicine to be an ideal profession for everybody was to have an optimal number of patients where you could see so many patients a day and still have a life where you could go ahead and spend a day as a doctor, be available to people whenever they need you, and uh, in the meantime, take a couple hours off in the afternoon, go coach your kids playing baseball, and or if your daughter, if you're in Pennsylvania, your daughter's playing softball in Jersey, go to the game in Jersey and, you know, just let everybody know that you're going to be gone for four hours. And, uh, you know, you'll be available at seven o'clock at night if they have any problems, you know, call at seven o'clock at night and I'll be happy to see you. Mm-hmm. Or if you have real emergencies in the meantime, you know, the closest emergency room to go to. Right, right. So, you know, you have the ability and you're asking about how, well, where do you have find the time for writing? Um my, I'm always thinking about something. I mean, there's always something on my mind. I don't know what it would be like to just sit down and and be totally relaxed mentally. I really don't even understand what that would be what like. What that is, yeah. Because I'm always working on something, and it's usually something different than what I'm doing at the time. It's I'm already thinking ahead to something different. So my, my general thing is I'll um, see patients usually in the morning. I might have to go over to the hospital or the skilled nursing facility do house calls in the afternoon. I have a large uh, property. I have uh, 12 and a half acres. So there's all the work that has to be done here, and I wind up doing most of it myself. Nighttime, uh, I'm a fan of the Philadelphia Phillies and of the Boston Celtics. 
So nighttime, if there's a game on, I'll probably watch a couple innings of the game. And if uh, my teams aren't winning, I'll probably fall asleep for about a half hour as the game progresses. And then I'll wake up probably 9, 10 o'clock at night, and I'll feel refreshed and uh, probably watch television, have a cup of coffee uh, or a glass of bourbon or Calvados or whatever, and uh, probably around midnight go out and write for a couple hours. And if I'm in a zone, if I'm writing something that I'm really into, I might not go to bed till 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. And then I'm getting up the next morning, 9, 10 o'clock, to, to start my next day. Yeah. The other thing, too, is I don't schedule patients every day. Uh, even when I wasn't semi-retired, which I pretty much am now, um, when I was, you know, uh, admitting a lot of people to the hospital and taking care of a much larger uh, practice than I have now, even then I would only schedule patients one or two days a week uh, where there was an actual schedule. Because by by putting down something which was highly regimented and which was workable, it allowed me all that extra time to be available for people when they were really sick, when they needed you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to have a doctor's appointment to go get your blood pressure checked in a month. It's another thing to wake up with an asthmatic attack at 3 in the morning and not know what to do. So my ability to be there for the asthmatic at 3 in the morning um, is a lot more critical than having your blood pressure routinely checked. Right. So it became a matter of priorities, and the way I set my practice up, it just worked out for everybody. And like I said, when you have that sense of trust with patients, um, you could go ahead and uh, uh, you won't you won't have the uh, the system abused. You won't have your program abused usually. And if it starts to get that way, then you discuss it with a patient that you know. Um, I understand that you would prefer to see me 9 o'clock on a Friday night because all your shows are finished. <laughs> but, you know, it might be better if we could come to a different kind of arrangement. Oh, my gosh. It sounds like your business model it could be the solution to just the the upheaval that um, medicine and healthcare is facing today. Just everything needs to be smaller and pared down and more personal and less, less rushed and less overseen by you know, bigger conglomerates, but uh, sure. you know, let's hope. Well, you know, the, the the paraclete, too, not only did I write it as a psychological thriller uh, that that I thought would have uh, great appeal, not only as a book, but, you know, your pipe dream is someday as a movie. But uh, I also had another motive in there because I'm a Catholic, and I don't like the direction of the Catholic Church. I don't like that uh, the way things have been done, the handling pedophiles within the Catholic Church, just transferring them from one church to another. And I, I, I understand what the, uh, what the reasons are. And uh, the Paraclete was not only written as a, an exercise in a great psychological thriller, a great novel, to go ahead and to get people thinking about uh, a lot of different elements, but also to come up with some solutions for the Catholic Church on how to solve their problems. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been one of the values uh, of the paraclete. And I, and I like that it's in a fictionalized form. So basically you're making your point, but in an enjoyable um, wrapping, let's say. Yeah, you know, and, and just so that uh, all the listeners could get an idea about the paraclete. Yes. Um, the paraclete's a novel that uh, was written to be a psychological thriller, you know, in the vein of Da Vinci Code, Silence of the Lambs, that type of thing. But uh, interestingly, it fits into a bunch of other uh, uh, genres. Uh, it's a religious thriller because there's a lot to do with uh, the Catholic Church. It's a crime novel because uh, a lot of priests are unexpectedly dying. And it's even uh, uh, romantic suspense. 
uh, because of the relationship that happens between uh, the lead character and who's a priest and uh, a beautiful nun that he meets. Uh, the whole book uh, uh, begins with um, a world-renowned Catholic theologian and author by the name of Father Paul Thielman uh, meeting a parish priest and a 13-year-old altar boy at uh, St. Declan's Roman Catholic Church in San Diego. Thielman has just arrived in San Diego, as the book begins, to embark on a round-trip cruise to the Hawaiian Islands, and has come to St. Declan's to say Mass before he leaves on his cruise. Uh, several days after Thielman meets with the parish priest and altar boy, he arrives in Hawaii and learns that the altar boy, dressed in full religious attire, jumped to his death from the Coronado Bridge into the San Diego Bay. When uh, Thielman hears of the suicide and later discovers that the boy took his own life because of repeated sexual abuse by his parish priest, he feels guilty that he failed to detect that pedophilic relationship during their meeting at a time when his intervention could have potentially saved the boy's life. So guilt-ridden and despondent, Thielman consults an expert on pedophilia, an elderly priest who previously worked as a paraclete or advocate for priests with physical and psychological impairments. After uh, Thielman learns about pedophilia, he accidentally discovers a naturally occurring seed that grows on vines in Hawaii and contains a poison more lethal than ricin. So, armed with a container of deadly seeds and still very angry over the altar boy's death, Thielman returns to San Diego to visit the parish priest who was responsible for the altar boy's suicide. His visit there triggers a veritable epidemic of unexplained deaths among pedophilic priests in the United States. Discovering a pattern to the recent demise of dozens of Catholic priests and suspecting Thielman is a serial killer, a veteran FBI agent whose own husband was the victim of pedophilic abuse finds herself in the middle of a moral dilemma. Should she immediately arrest the suspected serial killer, or should she take her husband's advice and let the killer continue to rid the Catholic Church of its pedophiles. So that's the premise of the book. And to find out what happens, you got to read it. got to read it. <laughs> or wait for the movie. But it would be quicker to read it. <laughs> well, speaking of that, then where can folks go to get copies of your book and, and your books and find out more about you? Well, uh, you can go to Amazon.com. All you have to do is... Go to Amazon.com, uh, scroll down to books, and just put my last name, Remakus, R-E-M-A-K-U-S, and it'll show all of my books, uh, including the Paraclete, and it'll talk, it'll show all the uh, uh, the information about each of the books. All of my books are available in hardcover, paperback, uh, and ebook, okay. and uh, also that you can uh, for people. Uh, want to go elsewhere, you can go to uh, uh, barnesandnoble.com, and uh, there my books are available as hardcovers and paperback. Uh, you can also um, go ahead and order my books through any local bookstore. And um, for people that uh, uh, don't want to have to pay to read the books, you can get a Kindle Unlimited membership and read all my books for free with uh, Kindle Unlimited. Mm -hmm. uh, read them as e-books. And 
the with all of these, a lot of people don't realize, but the Amazon and the Barnes and Noble uh, eBooks can be read on computers. You don't need special apps or right. uh, special software to be able to read it. You could download it and read it just like you would read an email. Yep. Uh, and you could uh, you could adjust the the size of the reading, uh, you know, to your uh, visual acuity, and uh, I have a pretty good experience just uh, reading it from your computer. Absolutely. That's what I have all of mine delivered when, when folks send books. I have them delivered to my PC and you can read it right there. Right. Yep. So the name of the book is The Paraclete, written by Dr. Bernard Leo Ramakis. What a conversation today. You are just so interesting to speak to. It's a, it's a pleasure working with people that uh, have such a uh, foresight uh, and have such a mission that uh, they can be profiting a lot of different people by doing something that they love. Like they say, uh, Work is when you'd rather be doing something else, and you sound like uh, you haven't been working for an awful long time. I never work, and I'm always at my desk. So how's That's that? what I tell people. <laughs> you are just the best. I wish you were nearby. You're the kind of doctor I would love to have. Isn't that wonderful of you to say. Yeah. Thank you. You know what? Let me, let me just give one last plug yeah. while we're talking. Um, you know, you mentioned before and when you, you did such a beautiful uh, resume, the um, I have a book that um, I just actually published last week. It's something that I've been thinking about doing for a half century. I, well, like I told you, I was writing poetry from way back in college, and it finally hit me a couple weeks ago that uh, I was on LinkedIn, and I got an invitation to join this poet uh, group. So at any rate, they were saying, well, yeah, we're looking for people to you know send in a poem. So I sent in one of my poems called Superstar. And for 50 years, I've had all these poets all these poems sitting in a very large folder, and some on my computer. Some of them actually appeared in my book Keystone because the uh, the hero in Keystone, his uh, his idol in life is Dr. Yuri Zhivago, the uh, the poet physician, and he writes poetry while he's in medical school to express what he's feeling. And then there, all this poetry was sitting there, and uh, this just. This LinkedIn thing, I sent in a poem, and I got this extraordinary response. Like over a 1,000 people responded to this one poem that I sent in. And then I sent in a second poem, and I got the same kind of response. And then a couple people started uh, messaging me and asking me, uh, what book of poetry did I write that contains this stuff? Uh And it hit me, you know, I'm sitting here with all this stuff, and probably I got some time this week. Probably in a couple days, I could probably throw together 25 mm-hmm. very nice love poems mm-hmm. and uh, put them together. I could design a cover for it. Yep. And probably in a week or two, I could have a new book out. And so last week we published Superstar. And the nicest part about it is I dedicated it to my wife. So now I don't have to, <laughs> I should have copies by Christmas. Now I don't have to go ahead and buy an expensive uh, <laughs> present for it because her picture's on the back cover. So I got, I'm telling you, thinking ahead. You got all your bases covered in one book. And when I am elected, you got it. You got it. You're the best. Thank you for today. Pat, nice talking to you.